Welcome back to the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast. It is Eli Sussman here with you, the managing editor of Fish Stripes. If you missed it last week, this is the new routine. Start your week with me every Monday morning, where I'll be hosting solo episodes of this podcast, trying to keep them right around 30 minutes in length, summing up what happened over the weekend, and there will be with every episode, a main focus on another particular topic, Marlins related, of course, everything we do here, Miami Marlins related, covering all aspects of the organization. After you start it with me on Mondays, continue your week right here with the rest of the Fist Stripes staff, all other weekdays throughout the 2021 season, Tuesday through Friday, we will have episodes of a new series, Big Fish, Small Pod. Those small pods will summarize the news of that particular day in 10 minutes or less, reacting to just what happened, what just happened the previous day, and what to expect moving forward. We'll intentionally keep those brief, but yet be consistent with them. So every single weekday, at the very least, on this podcast channel, you'll be getting something, and that's not even including the coverage that we'll do of prospects on earning their stripes, what I'll be doing with Alex Contreras on Marlins Barbecue and all the special guests that we'll be having from the team who cover the team and even outside of our orbit. We'll have a whole lot going on here on the podcast channel more than ever before. Make sure you're subscribing to us wherever you normally get your pods. As you can probably see from the title of this episode, we're going to be talking about milestones to watch for the Marlins during the upcoming season. But first, just recapping what happened over the past few days since uh, the weekend got underway. So from Friday through Sunday, the Marlins played a game each of those days, and they went 1-1-1. They won the Friday game against the Astros. They lost the Saturday game against the Nationals. That's their first loss of spring training games. And then on Sunday, they tied against the Mets. And each of those games, a different length, just to underscore how bizarre this spring is and why we don't take it too seriously the friday game was seven innings long the saturday game was six innings long and the sunday game they finally played a full nine and yet that unsatisfying ending having to end in a tie so just quick hitters one at a time each of those three games on friday the uh the two big stars i guess for the marlins in that one trevor rogers making his uh, i think that was his first start of the spring someone that We've discussed him quite a bit. He really did impress down the stretch last year, despite the overall numbers not being all that impressive. In this outing, the key to watch with him is the quality of his stuff. He's someone that has always been able to throw strikes, and the question being uh, how many bats can he miss at the major league level? That was something he was able to do throughout the minor leagues, and we saw that in 2020. Uh, The question being whether that fastball velo bump that we saw last year, he came to the majors last year throwing harder than expected. And that seems to be legit because his fastball at Roger Dean on Friday against the Astros touched 96 miles per hour a couple times and averaged just a tick below that. More importantly to me, the key to all this was his slider. His slider is a pitch that he had some comfortable time using last year, but just wasn't very successful. It was by far the weakest pitch in his arsenal. And in this appearance against the Astros over a couple innings, picked up three strikeouts, all of them on this slider. You really look into it and it wasn't just, 
you know, word of mouth and his own testimony about how effective it was, you could see the spin rate on that pitch that signals that maybe he is getting more consistent with it. The spin rate on those sliders that he got swings and misses with were upwards of 2,200 revolutions per minute RPM, and that's measured up right up there with the hardest, sharpest sliders that he threw during the entire 2020 season. Again, this is just a really small sample size. He only threw a handful of sliders in this appearance, and uh, but several of them were incredible. And that is such a big key for him. He was someone that was able to pile up strikeouts in his debut season, mostly just fastball changeup. And adding this pitch to his mix, um, Craig Mish is the loudest proponent of this, that he thinks Rodgers will get that fifth rotation spot for the Marlins at the very least. And uh, it's hard to argue with that if that quality of his stuff is sustained over these next couple spring training appearances. I'm someone that thought, admittedly, that he could use some more time in the minors specifically to iron out that slider or develop yet another pitch to go along with his his main weapons. And if he has already like taken such a big step forward with that, really exciting. He's someone that also put on some weight during the offseason. He said he's now up to about 219, 220. This is a guy who was drafted at only 185, so really filling out that six foot five frame, it's extremely encouraging. One of the last holdovers from the old regime, first round pick in 2017, right before the ownership change, and yet he's seeming to be a guy that just keeps getting better, and he'll have a big role, opening day or not, he'll have a very big role on this roster this season, and hopefully for many years to come. Brian Anderson had the home run in this game that decided it, an opposite field, no doubt home run for BA. He's someone that Don Mattingly has singled out as looking great throughout spring training, even though very limited sample size in games up to this point. And then again, Anthony Bender. Anthony Bender, a right-handed pitcher, non-roster invitee. This was his second appearance of the spring, and the first one... At, blew me away that he was averaging about 98 miles per hour on his fastball. In this second appearance, it was a lot more of the same. He averaged about 97 on his fastball, pitched another clean inning. There's really no path for him to be on the opening day roster, but this is a year where you're going to need to go through so many arms over the course of the season, and he's someone that, I mean, it's the same question as with a lot of these other guys. As long as this stuff that they're using right now is the same the next few outings, you really need to change your opinions of them. He's someone that I would expect to see in the majors at some point during the year, as long as he stays healthy, because that fastball slider combo that he has, it's the trademark of a lot of the most dominant relief pitchers that you see. Bender doesn't have any major league experience. He was someone that you asked, you could ask me pretty frankly, I he was not on my radar even when camp began. And he is jumping onto that radar in record time with how he's pitching in these spring games so far. Jumping to Saturday, that was the loss against the Nationals. It was shortened by rain. The plan was to play about nine innings that day, and they had to settle for six because of the inclement weather. Somewhat uncharacteristic game of the Marlins, not only because they lost for the first time all week, but they had an error by Miguel Rojas in the first inning that allowed the Nats to score a couple runs. This team, I think any way you quantify it, they have been the best defensive team in the Grapefruit League so far. Not just making the routine plays, but a lot of the more uh, higher level of difficulty ones and getting out of a lot of jams. So Sandy, in this game, Sandy Alcantara made his second start of the spring. He was really good. He, he got six strikeouts in this one. 
even though he didn't even finish three innings. That was one shy of his career high in a spring training game, his spring career high, not to be confused with his actual real career high in meaningful games. That being said, six strikeouts in this one. He looked great outside of that Rojas error. I mean, maybe the Marlins, if they don't win this game, they at least tie because a couple unearned runs came across as a result of that. Garrett Cooper had a home run in the third inning. He's been very good in games so far. That great combo of hard contact while also making contact. To this point, he has not struck out, even though he's been playing in most of the games. Uh, coming up pretty soon, he'll finally get his first reps in the outfield this spring. So far, it's just been DHing and first base. Then on Sunday, it was Pablo Lopez on the mound for the Marlins. Happy birthday to Pablo. He just turned 25 years old. And uh, as young as he is, he was one of the veterans in this lineup for this game. It was a road trip to go to play the Mets in Port St. Lucie. And the Marlins sent most of their prospects to go along for the ride in this one. The oldest player that started for the Marlins was Jorge Alfaro in this one. And he had a couple hits. Jorge, very small sample size, but he is hitting 500 this spring. Someone in a critical year of his career, no doubt about it, trying to prove that he is actually the long-term solution for the Marlins at catcher. Pablo, in this one, he was very impressive, generated a, a few double plays. I think as a team overall, the Marlins turned four ground ball double plays in the game. And really particular with Pablo, you know how effective he was last year in 2020. You know how high I've been on Pablo throughout his young career. And he is tinkering. He's trying to get even better. He did not have a very effective breaking ball last year, his curveball. It got hit around a little bit. It was only pitch, weakest link in his pitch mix. So he made some tweaks to it over the offseason. And this was the best example of what he's been working on because his curve was great in this one, threw it a handful of times, including getting a critical double play in the third inning it was. He talked about a post game, how he's been, why the changes he's made and the situations that he's been using it in here this spring. Same velocity as the old one had, right around 79, 80 miles per hour. But the actual release of the pitch, uh, the way it moves, those have been altered because of the new grip that he's using on that pitch. Very exciting possibilities if he's able to get soft contact and get whiffs on that pitch. Really raises the ceiling even more for what he could be uh, as arguably the best pitcher in this rotation. Uh, some other notes from the game. We got Gerard Encarnacion finally playing his first spring game. And he made an appearance at first base. Is a position that he's played a little bit in the minors, but primarily a corner outfielder DH type. So it was interesting to look at him finally on the field to microanalyze that performance. Old friend Jonathan VR was in this game, and uh, he was the one that provided almost all the Mets offense. He had a three-run home run against Yimmy Garcia. Yimmy, uh, just a terrible appearance from him, terrible control. He wasn't putting the ball where he wanted to, but he looks healthy, and it's early in spring. No doubt Yumi is going to have a significant role in this bullpen, trying to build off what he did last year. Good showing from Isan Diaz. He was a part of a couple of those double plays. There was one particular double play where he did a super quick release in order to turn the back half of that and get the out at first base. That really stood out to me. At the plate, he was great. He had a triple down the first base line, rocket down the line that um, was one of the hardest hit balls of the entire game. He also had a near home run, one that had the distance down the first baseline, down the right field line, and it just hooked foul at the last moment. Otherwise, he would have had that on his resume. But overall, Isan's been pretty good 
this spring on uh, both sides of the ball as he's in the middle of that second base competition with Jazz Chisholm. And I mean, overall, the reason why this game played out as it did is the Mets collectively were embarrassing in the field. This was such a big contrast between these two teams is the fundamentals defensively and just the communication between them, all that stuff. So that's something to, I guess, keep in mind as we move into the regular season uh, and how much of that actually manifests on the field in real games, who's sloppy and who's clean and the way that those affect the way your pitchers perform. I mean, both these teams uh, potentially are going to have great starting rotations on paper. A key difference between the pitcher independent performance and what actually happens on the field in terms of run prevention will be the fielders. So that is definitely going to be something to monitor this year. Another new addition to this podcast moving forward is I'm going to give you a heads up when I'm putting in a commercial break in the middle of the episode. Always have to put in those commercials. And uh, first one is coming up right here. After we get back from this, I'll go through my five big milestones for the Marlins that I'll be watching for in 2021. Stick with me. This is Marlins Milestone Watch for the 2021 season. I am someone that loves to dive into the research and dive into these obscure numbers going on with the team, especially relevant in years where the team isn't a contender. But uh, thankfully, they have raised the bar a little bit this year compared to where they were at the start of the rebuild. So we don't need to fixate on this kind of stuff unless the team does, as it turns out, fall behind in the division. Just uh, some curious numbers from the individual and the team collectively that would be fascinating to follow and in some cases could be um, historic, uh, well, could be at least historic by the franchise's standards that and uh, really stick out to me. The first one being the home runs that they hit at home. The Marlins throughout their franchise history have been a team that has generally been near the bottom in the power hitting department almost throughout their entire history, especially since moving to Marlins Park. Uh, just, just a small number of individual players that have been elite power hitters, and uh, even the ones that have been pretty good just haven't stayed very long. Uh, with this Marlins team, I, I wouldn't say there's any one individual in this lineup that is truly elite and going to like sustain it for a full year, but they do have a bunch of threats in their lineup from Brian Anderson to Adam Duvall, Jesus Aguilar, and Garrett Cooper. Yeah, key prospects that we're expecting a lot of from Jazz Chisholm and later in the season, Lewin Diaz. Maybe Lewis Brinson finally puts it all together. Probably not. And of course, Starling Marte, who I'll be mentioning again in a few minutes. Starling Marte is pretty consistently a great hitter throughout his career. For this team, since moving to Marlins Park, they have not had more than 95 home runs at home in a single season. And uh, the franchise record was set in 2007 before the new stadium. That was 110 home runs in home games. I think it's certainly going to be a stretch to see them challenge the franchise mark from 2007, but the Marlins Park record should be pretty attainable. That 95 set in 2017 with a lot of help from Giancarlo Stanton. They don't have their own Stanton this time, but they have a deep lineup and they have ones that hit against both lefty and righty pitching. For all the guys I just mentioned, uh, one of the most important ones that I left out was Corey Dickerson. Dickerson, I think, is due for a significant bounce back year, given his track record. And at this point, it seems that Mattingly is planning to bat Dickerson near the top of the lineup. 
So not to be too worried about the righty-heavy lineup if Dickerson is someone that returns to form. Overall, uh, combine all that with what kind of went under the radar, the fact that the Marlins changed the outfield fence dimensions at Marlins Park entering last year. We barely got to see them in action because of the shortened season and because of the shortened games, seven-inning doubleheader games. So the sample size is super small and not really relevant. I think that could have some sort of an impact, though, on these borderline home runs. More so than ever before, Marlins Park will hopefully play like a, a neutral ballpark when it comes to the home run factor. So that key number set at Marlins Park was 95 home runs in a single season at home for the Marlins. And I think they will be in very close contention for that record, if not set it outright by the time we get through the end of this 2021 season. My second milestone to watch is attendance. We always love to fixate on Marlins attendance, whether they could get a higher home attendance than road attendance here. Now, that's something that did happen way back during the inaugural season in 1993. Of course, fans were really excited to see the expansion franchise, and they were playing in a facility at Joe Robbie Stadium that could fit about as many people as you wanted in any given day. Uh, since then, I believe in 1997, they made a pretty, pretty close run at it between home attendance and road attendance. Um, since moving to the new ballpark, it really hasn't been all that close, and things got pretty ugly right before the pandemic hit in 2019 when the team is only averaging about 10,000 fans yet drawing about 27, 28,000 in road games. So this is more of a quirk of, of course, where we are in dealing with the pandemic, not trying to get political, but we know that different states and municipal governments have different rules in terms of the tolerance they have for people allowed to congregate at big events in one place Florida is more lax with their rules than these other cities, ones that happen to be opponents of the Marlins. The Marlins will play most of their road games in the Northeast, in New York, in Maryland, in uh, Massachusetts, and in um, Washington, D.C. So these are all areas that are going to be more stringent with the number of people they allow. The Marlins have said to start uh, the beginning of the season, they plan to have capacity at slightly over 20% of the usual, uh, so in some cases allowing maybe 8,000 people per game, and the momentum appears to be that all these stadiums will allow some sort of fan attendance, but not as much in the Northeast as they do here in Florida, and potentially as the season goes on, the doors open to expand capacity uh, as we progress and hopefully get everybody vaccinated. This is a reminder to all of you out there, if you have an opportunity to get the vaccine, please do so. And by the time we get to the second half of the summer, they could open it up, not unrestricted, I imagine, but something close to half full at Marlins Park for certain games and all that, and the steps they could take to try to make it a safer environment for people to attend. That has been a very big priority for the Marlins to communicate the steps they are taking to keep you safe when you come to the game and to keep everybody sterilized as much as possible. So I like the Marlins' chances of actually registering a higher attendance at home than on the road this season. Once it's all said and done, they have an outside shot at a million fans at home. I don't even think it will be quite that high, but uh, it might not need to be in order to rival what they get in opposing teams' ballpark. Number three milestone, the pitching staff single-season strikeout record. This one, not particularly bold or clever. It's just the way that the game has been going for a while now. 
where we're seeing pitchers with better and better stuff and more variety in their pitches and the ability to engineer particular pitches that are just so hard for hitters to adjust to. And the Marlins just have an extraordinary amount of talent on their pitching staff. It's uh, in the rotation, as you can see, with Sandy and Pablo and Eliezer and Sixto and Trevor. And um, even in their depth chart, once we get the season going later on, hopefully Edward Cabrera finally gets healthy in time to contribute during the second half of the year. Hopefully they're willing to uh, let loose Max Meyer and give him an opportunity to show what he's got with his 80-grade untouchable slider. Also in the bullpen, I'm a big fan of a lot of the bullpen moves they made this offseason, in particular acquisitions like John Curtis from the Rays in that trade, Anthony Bass and free agency. These are guys that definitely can miss bats. I did quite a bit of that last year, and there you could get even better because they have a great fastball to work off of, and uh, they seem to have a thirst for knowledge and for making adjustments. So the staff record for the Marlins was set in 2016, 1,379, and they nearly topped that mark in 2019, despite actually not having as good a pitching staff on paper as the one we should see in 2021. Something working in their favor for sure compared to 2020 is that it doesn't seem like there will be a designated hitter in the National League, so an ability to prey on opposing pitchers to rack up your strikeout totals a little bit more than usual. Overall, they just have so many good options in this department that even though they're playing what should be a pretty tough schedule overall, I think uh, their talent is going to rise to the top, and they have a great shot at hitting 1,379 Ks. Uh, I think they could beat that by a pretty significant margin when all is said and done. My number four milestone this season, Starling Marte going for a 2020 season, 20 home runs, 20 steals. I looked this up, and I was pretty wowed by what I found that there have only been four guys in Marlins history that have had a 2020 season. One of them, you will I don't think you'll ever guess. The ones you know off the top of your head are Hanley Ramirez for sure, and you probably know Preston Wilson. Cliff Floyd did it one time, and also first baseman Derek Lee, a first baseman who went 2020 uh, early in his career with the Marlins. So that one, that one caught me off guard. I, I was going in a, another direction with my thought process there. And Starling could be the fifth. He's someone that won 2020 during the last two full seasons that he played in 2018 and 2019 with the Pirates. And he's someone that he's now, what, 32 years old? This is the age where you could see some of that athleticism slipping. If you've been watching him in spring training, there does not seem to be any slippage so far. So that's very encouraging. He's going to be very motivated. He's entering a walk year. His contract year, the Marlins, they picked up his option last year. Otherwise, he could have been a free agent last year. And he's going to look to get one nice payday. He's someone that signed an extension that was pretty team-friendly when he did it back early in his Pirates days. So he'll be looking to really shore up generational wealth for himself. It's unusual to see players deep into their 30s get nice contracts in free agency. But if he is just a great offensive player while still holding it down in center field every single day, that he should get a really hearty multi-year deal. Probably not from the Marlins, if you've seen the way that this stuff usually plays out with this team. 
And the big question, the big obstacle that he faces in this pursuit is whether or not he's going to be a Marlin for the entire season. Because if this team does fall off the pace in the National League East and in the wild card, they'll be pretty tempted to trade him, a pending free agent, knowing all the outfield prospects that they have in their system that they want to get opportunities to, that he'll be someone they'll be very tempted to unload before the season is done, before he has the chance to hit that home run in that stolen base mark. If he is here for the whole year, it should be a fun pursuit down to the wire. If he's here the whole year, it usually says something pretty good about where the Marlins are in the standings trying to return to October for the second straight year. My fifth and final milestone to watch for for the Marlins this upcoming season goes back to the pitching staff, in particular the starting rotation. Credit to the research assistants of Stathead for allowing me to find the answer to this query because I was very fascinated in the cultural diversity of the Marlins staff. You know about the quality of these players, and even if it's not top of mind, you're probably aware that most of them were not born in the U.S., international flavor. And these guys have the talents and the ability and the charisma that makes them such a great fit for the South Florida market. Historically, the Marlins and really every other baseball team, your starting rotation has been predominantly white for reasons that are too lengthy to explain here on this quick podcast. But the Marlins are bucking that trend this upcoming year with Sandy. Let's just play a game. Conservative projections. Let's say Sandy pitches close to a full season, about 30 games started Pablo pitches about 25, and then you get a little more than half a season out of Eliezer Hernandez and Sixto Sanchez. So let's say they combine for 35 between the two. You add up those four at the top of the Marlins rotation, 90 games started from Sandy, Pablo, Eliezer, Sixto. If they do that, that would be a franchise record. They've never had more than 89 foreign-born pitchers start in a single season. Well, total starts, not total pitchers, but you know what I mean. 89 total starts, which was set back in 2018. The last few seasons since the ownership change, that has been the trends where every year they are either setting that record or challenging it. Those are only the last couple of years where they've had more than 50% of their games started by non-American pitchers. And this time, these guys, it's not only about the marketability. These guys have the incredible talent, and hopefully the consistency to stick in the rotation for most, if not all, the season. So that's something I'll be watching for as well, to see if those four guys, plus Edward Cabrera, plus who knows who else comes up through the pitching ranks of this farm system and contributes as the season goes on, that this rotation is going to look different than it really ever has before by having such a heavy presence from those guys born outside the United States. Thanks again for tuning in to the official show, the Monday solo edition of the official show, which will be a new tradition throughout the rest of spring training and the regular season and beyond. This is Eli Sussman. Be sure to check back every single weekday. We're going to hope to have new podcast episodes every single day to get you the latest news and info about your Miami Marlins. Best of luck to them moving forward, hoping to remain one of the more dominant teams here in spring training and most important of all, just to stay healthy as we get through this exhibition season with baseball not that far away, with real baseball right around the corner with the Marlins. If you haven't gotten the chance already, the single game tickets went on sale to the general public for Marlins home games. 
So check those out if you haven't already gotten an opportunity to. Uh, those tickets, I imagine, are going pretty quickly considering the reduced capacity. But if you, I'm sure you're eager to get back to the ballpark after being shut out in 2020. And the Marlins are taking all these steps to try to make it as safe and fulfilling as possible to be there in person rooting on this team. I'll talk to you guys again soon. Thank you for all the support. And as always, go fish. Thank <laughs> you.